0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, the great Miles Davis passed away. And we do this days in history unlike anyone else. We'll do Rockefeller, we'll do the Gettysburg Address... But we also do Bob Dylan and Miles Davis, because these people are important. They change lives, and frankly, sometimes they change the course of history, music history. And Miles did that. 48 studio albums, 36 live albums, 35 compilation albums, 17 box sets, 3 soundtracks, 57 singles, and a bunch of remix albums. And Miles was born the son of a prosperous dental surgeon and a music teacher and he was born Miles Dewey Davis III in 1926 in Alton, Illinois. Davis grew up in a supportive middle-class household where he was introduced by his father to the trumpet at the age of 13. Davis quickly developed a talent for playing that trumpet under the private tutelage of Elwood Buchanan, a friend of his father who directed a music school. Davis played professionally while in high school. When he was just 17 years old, He was invited by Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker to join them on stage when the famed musicians realized they needed a trumpet player to replace a sick bandmate. What an opportunity. In 1944, Davis left Illinois for New York, where he would soon enroll in the remarkable, the world-renowned Juilliard School, known at the time as the Institute of Musical Art. Here, Miles Davis talks about those early years at Juilliard, and his reaction to being told by a teacher that black people played the blues because they suffered.
1: I told a student teacher of mine like that in Juilliard. She started talking about, um, well, you know, black people would respond to it at night, and they just, and they'd say, that's where the blues came from. So I raised my hand, I said, like, listen, my father's rich, my mom is good looking, and I can play the blues. I never suffered and don't intend to suffer.
0: And it's so true. The idea that one race or one class has a, has a monopoly. monopoly on depression or blues or anything is just stupid. And we don't countenance here on Our American Stories. Davis sought out Charlie Parker, and after Parker joined him, began to play at Harlem nightclubs. He met several musicians whom he would play with and form the basis for bebop, a fast improvisational style of jazz instrumentals that defined the modern jazz era. Here's Charlie Parker with Miles Davis on Bird of Paradise. (laughs) 1945, Miles elected with his father's permission to drop out of Juilliard and become a full-time jazz musician. And my goodness, we know and hear this story again and again and again. Drop out of school, learn your craft. A member of the Charlie Parker Quintet at the time, Davis made his first recording as a bandleader in 1946 with the Miles Davis Sextet. Between 45 and 48, Davis and Parker recorded continuously. It was during this period that Davis worked on developing the improvisational style that defined his trumpet playing. Here is one of his early recordings from 1945 called Now's the Time. In 1949, Davis formed a nine piece band with uncommon additions the French horn, the trombone, the tuba. He released a series of singles that would later be considered a significant contribution to modern jazz. They were released as part of the album Bertha Cool. In the, no- in the early 1950s, Davis became addicted to heroin. While he was still able to record, it was a difficult period for the musician, and his performances were haphazard. Davis overcame his addiction in 1954, around the time that his performance of Round Midnight at the Newport Jazz Festival earned him a recording contract with Columbia Records. There, he also created a permanent band comprised of John Coltrane, Paul Chambers, and Red Garland. Here, Miles Davis talks about how he eventually kicked his heroin addiction, cold turkey.
1: I looked in the mirror one day, and I just stopped. I went out to my father's place. He had a couple hundred acres of land. And I went out, and uh, he had two compartments like this for his guests. So I went in one of them and locked the door. And I stayed there for about about five days before I could get up and walk. And then was said, I'm still a drug addict if if I use drugs. It's like being an alcoholic. But every day it gets better. Every day.
2: And gradually,
0: it leaves your head. Every day it got better, and gradually it leaves his head. But he said he's always a drug addict. And when we come back on Our American Stories, the record that propelled him into stardom kind of blew. And and a career not much different than Bob Dylan in some respects. We learned about Dylan just not wanting to be trapped in any one medium... He hated the idea of being a legend. So did Miles. And he was always trying to pursue whatever was around the bend, whatever was next. And when we come back, more about the life of the legendary Miles Davis after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and that is So What from Kind of Blue. And it was the largest selling jazz album of all time, selling two million copies. Unheard of for that particular genre. And Davis continued to be a success through the 60s. My goodness, his bandmates included guys who would go on to found Weather Report, Chick Korea, my goodness, John McLaughlin. It goes on and on. The development of jazz fusion was influenced by artists such as Jimi Hendrix and Sly and the Family Stone, reflecting the fusion of jazz and this music called rock and roll. Here the great jazz musician Herbie Hancock tells a story about Miles Davis and his eccentric behavior in the 1960s before they recorded an album called Seven Steps to Heaven together.
3: 1963, I get this call from Miles which led to me going to his house, not knowing what was going on. He had some music there, and we started playing. He played for a minute, minute and a half, and then he took his trumpet and threw it down on the couch, and he said, oh, crap. Well, he didn't, not crap, he used another word. But anyway, he, he ran upstairs, and we didn't see him for the rest of the day. This happened for, for three days in a row, where mouse would just play a tiny bit and then leave us. What I found out, maybe 20 or 25 years later, is that Miles actually ran upstairs to his bedroom and he was listening to us on his intercom. And he knew that if he had stayed down there, we would have been nervous. And in order to hear us kind of unencumbered, he he removed himself from there, which is so wise and so compassionate. He didn't want to make us nervous. that way he could hear what we really played. Next thing I know, on the last day, he played a little more with us. And then he said, okay, next Tuesday, we have to meet at Columbia Recording Studios. And uh, we recorded a record called Seven Steps to Heaven.
0: Wow. How smart. I mean, if, if you're Miles Davis or you're Michael Jordan and you enter a room, everything changes. It just does. And what wisdom and what eccentricity, let's just say. If you want to call Miles anything, call him an eccentric. Here's Herbie Hancock going on to talk about how Miles Davis turned him on to the music of one Jimi Hendrix.
3: Jimi Hendrix, I mean, what an amazing musician. But at the time, I didn't know that. And the reason I didn't know that is because I had tunnel vision about jazz and classical music. So, just because he was playing bluesy style, I I just completely blew it. Because it was bluesy and it wasn't like the modern jazz, up-to-date jazz that I was listening to, I, I just didn't pay any attention to it, thanks to Miles Davis. I changed my whole viewpoint because I found out Miles was very open about music. And Miles was Mr. Cool, like the coolest guy I'd ever met. So I said, if Miles is open about music, it must be cool to be open about music. So then I started listening to James Brown, then started listening to Jimi Hendrix. And, and this was around the time that there was a rumor going around that Jimmy and Miles were going to get together.
0: Wow, what, what a show that would have been, huh? The album Bitches Brew, recorded a few weeks after the 1969 Woodstock Music Festival, set the stage for the jazz fusion movement to follow. Bitches Brew soon became a best-selling album released March 30, 1970 on Columbia Records. Here's a track from that album called Spanish Key. The album continued his experimentation with electric instruments previously featured on his critically acclaimed In a Silent Way album. With the use of these instruments, such as the electric piano and guitar, Davis rejected traditional jazz rhythms in favor of looser, rock influenced improvisational style. And as a result, Davis was featured on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine, becoming the first jazz artist to be so recognized. For his traditional fans, this change of style was not welcome. And recall with Dylan, when he plugged in at Newport at the Folk Festival, they went crazy, but he was moving on. He fell in love with rock and the guitar, the electric guitar. This exemplifies Davis's ability to experiment and push the limits of his own music style. Like we hear from many accomplished musicians, Miles Davis didn't like being called legendary. Here... Miles explains why he thinks it's never a good idea to call anyone a legend. It's not a good thing to say somebody's a legend. Because
1: it makes makes you think like an old man with a can and stuff, and they finally found you and you're a legend because everybody talks about you, what you used to do, you know? So rather than labels, you know, I don't like... To to be labeled as anything but a musician
0: and Miles. Here, Davis talks about how he really learned to play his instrument and it had nothing to do with being black, like so many white people think.
1: I turn on the black station and I practice while I listen to it. I play with them. But you have to find your own way to to learn after you go to school. Then it starts. When you get out of conservatory, it hasn't started yet. It's no shortcut. You know, I'm no accident. You know what I mean? White people give the black musicians in America the attitude they, they don't have to practice. You got it. It's natural. It's not so. You have to practice and you have to study.
0: You have to practice and you have to study. Here, Miles Davis explains how his, quote, round tone is immediately recognizable while other trumpet players aren't. I have a sound that
1: that, that other trumpet players don't don't have because the sound that I like when I was 12, 13 is a round tone. That's the reason when I played Flight of the Bumblebee and Carnival of Venice, I had to play like Harry James. That's a white sound. But the sound that I have, the Japanese people recognize it as soon as I hit it. If I'm not on stage and I warm up or something, they can hear the sound. Because there's a lot of good musicians that aren't, you know, that don't, don't play. People walking around and can memorize. And they recognize my sound, like Frank Sinatra's voice or James Brown, you know. You can, you can, you know who it is. It's the
0: sound. And Miles continued to play and play. And here he is talking about just that. He says the music is just always in his head.
1: I can't say I'm not gonna play in ten years, you know, because I love music so much. I have to play something. As long as as long as these things come in my head, you know? I mean, I get melodies. Yesterday was just... As long as they come in my head, I'll play. I hear short phrases. And I hear a lot of calypso. And a lot of 680 crazy all the time even when you even when I eat it's always something there something there now but
0: I'll, I'll be planning next 10 years even when he eats it's always in his mind on September 28 1991 Davis succumbed to pneumonia and respiratory failure, dying at the age of 65. Fittingly, his recording with Quincy Jones at the time would bring Miles Davis his final Grammy, awarded posthumously in 1993. The honor, just another testament to the musician's profound and lasting influence on jazz. This is Our American Stories. And periodically, we love to just hear from really smart people. They're not famous. You've never heard of them before. But they can talk. And they can talk about anything. We all had that teacher that the guy could have taught or gal could have taught anything. And you would have taken it and it would have been interesting. And a while back, we had on Steven Goldberg to talk about something or another. We don't remember what. But he went on this tear. And it, and it went on and on. And usually you're the host. You want to interrupt. You want to say something. But he just kept going. Yeah, you asked him one question, and 12 minutes later, the segment was over, and he hadn't even taken a breath yet. Not a he breath. He just talked. But it wasn't boring. No. Not only wasn't it boring, we were wondering, how does he keep making it more interesting, <laughs> yeah. and why do we want to interrupt? And darn, I can't believe we have to go to a commercial.
2: Yeah.
0: And so we're calling this segment Musings. And right now it's with Steven Goldberg, but it could be with anybody. And by the way, Steven Goldberg, now retired, was chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York, for 20 years. His books include Fads and Fallacies in the Social Sciences, When Wishes Replace Thought, and The Inevitability of Patriarchy, which I think is what we originally had him on for. Some musings about that. And his work has appeared everywhere. Psychiatry, Yale Review, National Review, Saturday Review, every review. Let's take a listen to Steven Goldberg's musings. So
4: it's 1956 and I'm 14 years old. I'm on this bicycle trip from Calgary, Canada to Yellowstone Park, Wyoming. There are 12 guys and a leader, an ex-Marine named Grockdorf. Now I'm pretty good at bike riding, which is a good thing, because it's a lot of miles from Calgary to Yellowstone. But what I'm not good at, and what I never expected to do, was having to ride a horse. <laughs> we would stop at a ranch, a real ranch, not what you call a, a dude ranch, and uh, we would be required to ride a horse. A horse? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. What's a Jewish kid from New York doing riding a horse? Who ever heard of such a thing? the time comes when they're giving out the horses. In front of me is a guy, Jimmy, who is more than a bit of a wise guy. And he says to the cowboy who's giving the horses out, he'd like a frisky steed. (laughs) Now, cowboys don't uh, tend to show a lot of emotion on their faces, but they can't keep their feelings out of their eyes. And I could see the eyes of this cowboy. And he was thinking, oh, he wants a frisky steed, does he? Bring out Dr. Death. (laughs) So now it's my turn to be given a horse. Uh, Naturally, I request an old lady horse, preferably one with advanced arthritis. I couldn't have been more pleased. They bring me this spinster horse named Lucky. The cowboy realized I needed all the help I could get. Lucky must have been 80 years old. 80 years in people years, not horse years. We start riding and it soon becomes clear that my horse was a sort of reverse camel. Where a camel's back goes up in the air, my horse's tummy went down and rubbed against the ground. My legs were like, you know, the things on children's bikes. I think they're called training wheels. Every step, Lucky took, my heels dug into the ground. So the many-hour ride went okay. Thank goodness we didn't gallop. And we settled down at night and got into our sleeping bags for a well-deserved night's rest. But I noticed something. Grockdorf, the leader, just let the horses hang out. Now I had seen enough western movies to know that when a cowboy goes into a bar for a mug of um he uh, ties his horse to a hitching post. That was, I correctly assume, to keep the horse from running away. I guess have never heard of this and um, never saw the movies. So come morning, there was a, not a horse to be seen. Three hours later, two very angry-looking cowboys rode uh, within view, leading a pack of 13 horses. It was incidentally at this time that I first thought of a question that I have not found an answer for in the 60 years that have passed since. Perhaps that's because it might uh, take a rancher to answer the question. And as your listeners probably know, we don't have many ranches in New York City. New York City! I mean, the buildings are about 20 feet apart. What kind of ranch could you have? Maybe one big enough for a single cow. Anyway, perhaps one of your listeners could answer the question, and, and here it is. This is the question. Say there are two cowboys out on a ranch, like the ones I've heard of they have in Texas. In the far, far distance, there is a horse. It's almost out of sight for the cowboys, so far away that they can tell it's a horse, but not whether it's a gentleman horse or a lady horse. One of the cowboys turns to the other and says, hey, look over there, there's a horse. No problem, because the cowboy doesn't have to know the sex of the horse. The word horse covers both sexes. It's just a horse. Now, here's where things get tricky. Let's say a cow or a bull is in the distance, instead of a horse. The cowboys can tell it's a cow, not a horse. The lower center of gravity is observable, um, even at the great distance. But horns and udders are much too small to be seen at that distance. One cowboy turns to the other and says, hey, look over there. There's a what? What is the cow-bull sexless equivalent of a horse? I wrote to the Department of Agriculture asking my question. The department wrote back uh, in a three-page, tightly typed letter, giving me an entire taxonomy of the cow-bull. I didn't know whether to applaud the department for its uh, fine work or write a letter of criticism for their wasting our tax money, expending time... And energy on a dumb question like mine. Anyway, the Department of Agriculture gave me an answer. You call the uh, sex-free word for uh, cow bull equivalent to horse for horse a bossaurus. torus. <laughs> well, maybe. It's really hard to believe that a cowboy would turn to his partner and say, hey, look over there, there's a boss, Taurus." <laughs> See, when I was a kid, I saw movies with great cowboys. Your listeners mostly have probably never heard of because they're too young. But these were great. There was Bob Steele, Lash LaRue, Whip Wilson. I mean, these guys were tough. There were no singing cowboys, if you get my drift. Bob, Lash, and Whip wouldn't be called dead, saying Boss Taurus. So what would they say? I found one Google source that said there's no sexless word for cow or bull. There's no equivalent to the word horse. But people have been ranching for 5,000 years, and it's it's difficult to believe that they haven't found a need for such a word. So what could the cowboy say? Well, perhaps they could say that cow means both male and female, as we have, at least traditionally, used man, not just for male, but male and female. But I've never heard of this and doubt that the cowboys had either. So, what is the sexless word for the cow bull, the equivalent of the word horse? Sixty years later, and I still don't know.
0: Thank you very much. Oh, and thank you, Stephen Goldberg. (laughs) Bastorus. Wow. Bastorus. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's Stephen Goldberg. That's our musing segment. And we just love hearing from really great storytellers. And it does not get better than that. Stephen Goldberg, retired chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories and you're listening to Jared Reynolds, singing a song, well if you've been a church, into a church of any kind, ever, Christian or not, it's a song you've heard. And we love to tell the stories of songs here on Our American Stories, every kind, Light My Fire by the Doors, we did Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd, There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, what a story that is. And Gimme Shelter, it doesn't get better. How that song was made, how it was recorded, you hear from Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, the whole band, and a singer who does some remarkable background work. A great story. And the story of this song, I Surrender All, boy is it good. As a public high school art teacher in Sharon, Pennsylvania, Judson Wheeler Van Deventer found himself at a crossroads in 1891. He was an active member of his Methodist Episcopalian Church, and his friends encouraged him to enter ministry, but he resisted. He felt that his arm's-length relationship with Jesus Christ disqualified him from genuinely professing and preaching faith in his Savior. He was born in December 5, 1855, to John and Eliza on a small farm in Dundee, Michigan. Although he was raised in a Christian household, He didn't come face to face with Christ until he was 17. After this encounter, he continued to struggle with surrendering his life and trusting in his God. Soon afterwards, in 1874, he began attending a small rural college in Michigan called Hillsdale College, where he studied art. He also studied, taught, and composed music, and throughout his life, he would master 13 different instruments— He wrestled with God for five more years. But finally, at a church meeting in East Palestine, Ohio, where he was leading the worship, he came to a conclusion and wrote a song. Van Deventer wrote this, For some time I had struggled between developing my talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. At last the pivotal hour of my life came, and I surrendered all. A new day was ushered into my life. I became an evangelist and discovered down deep in my soul a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart and touched a tender chord. He caused me to sing. The song born in his heart was this song. Of the more than 60 hymns he he wrote, this is his best known. In 1896, Winfield... Whedon put these words to music. Whedon loved the hymn so much that the words were put on his tombstone after his death in 1908. As we learn so often in art, collaboration occurs. And here we needed Mr. Whedon to put, well, to put these words and music together. The writer of this song retired to Tampa, Florida, and was a regular professor at hymnology at Florida Bible Institute. One man that was moved by this song, Reverend Billy Graham, who wrote the following account, which was published in Crusade Hymn Stories. Quote, One of the evangelists who influenced my early preaching was also a hymnist who wrote I Surrender All. He was a regular visitor at the Florida Bible Institute in the late 1930s. We students love this kind, deeply spiritual gentleman, and often gathered in his winter home at Tampa, Florida, for an evening of fellowship and singing. And that's the power of song, folks. The music, this music, this one song, this one man, influenced one of the great pastors and spiritual leaders of the 20th century, Billy Graham. Even today, this hymn can be seen and heard in prime time, Here's Oprah Winfrey with her guest, country music star Faith Hill. I heard
5: from my my producers that last night in rehearsal that you really can belt out some gospel. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and the song you were singing during rehearsal just happens to be one of my favorites. Because I'm gonna tell you why. Well, have a seat, y'all. <laughs> When I wanted to be in the color purple, which is now it's 20 years ago, I wanted to be in the color purple, mm-hmm. and I had auditioned for the color purple. And I, two months later, I call back and they say, "Well, no, we have real actresses, we have real actresses <laughs> who've auditioned for this part." And I was so hurt, and I was, you know, very much overweight, and I had been praying and praying and praying and praying to get this role, and. After I heard that other people, real actresses, I thought it's not going to happen. And I thought it's because I'm fat and it's because I thought this was the moment for me. So I go to this fat farm, this health retreat (laughs) to try to lose 50 pounds in two weeks. So I'm there and I said to God, I said, God, this is too heavy for me. This, This is too much. I've wanted it. I've become obsessed with it. I want this role so much. So I go out on the track and I start praying and I say, I don't think it's gonna happen, God. I really don't think it's gonna happen for me. But will you take it, take this from me? This obsession, this desire, this thing that I I feel like I can't go on unless I get this role. And I started singing, I surrender all. Wow. I started praying and singing. I started going around the track, singing. I surrender all. And I prayed and I sang and I prayed and I sang and I prayed and I sang and I cried. I prayed and I sang and I cried and when I finally, you know, there's a difference between praying and then getting Mm -hmm. up and taking the prayer with you. Mm -hmm. I prayed until Jesus came down and he took it. I literally surrendered it. I literally surrendered it. I got up, I left the track, I thought, okay, I can I can I can move on now. I'm gonna be okay. I'm gonna be okay. And I started to turn to walk back into um the the, the cafeteria, naturally. <laughs> and this woman comes running out the door and she says, There's a phone call for you. It's Steven Spielberg. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And that was really that was that, and that moment was when I came to know what it meant to surrender versus just kind of talking about it. Right. I got on the phone and Steven says, I hear you're at a fat farm. And I go, no, sir, it's a health retreat. <laughs> and uh, he said, if you lose a pound, you could lose this part. And so I stopped at the Dairy Queen on the yeah. way. But since that time, you know, I Surrender All is one of my favorite songs. I didn't know that. Yes. And I heard that last night during rehearsal, you were singing I Surrender All. Mm -hmm. I go, that is my song. (laughs) So would you do that for us? Oh, yes. Okay.
0: And this is the power of that song. One African-American Mississippi girl knew it. And a white Mississippi girl knew it. They came from very different sides of the track in a state torn by race at the time, and they were young. And here is that Mississippi girl singing to the other Mississippi girl, no doubt, both of their favorite songs.
2: All to
0: Jesus
2: I surrender Freely give I will ever love I will ever love and trust Him In His presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender the at His feet I bow Worldly pleasures, all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. Blessed Savior, all.
0: And thanks, Brianna and the students at Hillsdale College for coming up with this beautiful story, the story of a song. Van Deventer, by the way, died in Florida on July 17, 1939. The song lives on forever. American stories and we love to do this days in history well because why not no one else is doing it I mean on so many shows you'll see a little blip a little picture and they'll spend about 10 seconds on something they should be spending 20 minutes on and they shouldn't be spending 20 minutes on the stuff that they are they should be spending 10 seconds on it and so we want to flip the programming that you've come to know on so much of television and radio that doesn't make sense to you And on this day in history, you're about to hear an extraordinary story, the story of an amazing ascent. It's the story of one man who lays the foundations for a global enterprise, a story marked by bitter trials and tribulations, yet filled with remarkable successes. And as always, our this days in history are brought to us by Hillsdale College. And at Hillsdale, you can learn the classic liberal arts education. You'll study the Constitution, philosophy, the classics. You'll study art. You'll study, well, everything. Theology, the Bible, and most importantly, you'll play sports. Because they think Plato and shoulder pads matter. And so let's tell this story of an American dreamer who lived the American dream And on this day in history, he died in 1956.
6: In the summer of 1889, eight-year-old Wilhelm Edward Boeing has no way of knowing that one day he will be running the biggest aviation company in the world. His father, who was also named Wilhelm, emigrated from Germany to what was seen as the El Dorado for timber merchants, Detroit, Michigan. He was 22 and penniless, yet saved every cent and became a millionaire through the timber and mining industries. More specifically, from the iron cult Taconite. Here's William Edward Boeing, Jr.
7: And his father was a a very fast learner. I mean, to come to this country and live here uh, just 20-some years and be successful as he was. I find that most remarkable.
6: The son adores his father and sees him as a role model.
7: Suddenly, catastrophe enters young Wilhelm's world. Unfortunately, he died of influenza at the age of 41 or so. And I mean, having his father die at such an early age was certainly most difficult for the family.
6: For Wilhelm, life becomes even harder when his mother remarries. The boy withdraws into his own world and openly
8: refuses to accept his stepfather. Stepfathers and stepsons don't always. Um, mesh perfectly right off the bat uh, and he may have uh, felt that this was good for young William to get a little more discipline in his life and so on and so he was packed off to school
6: young Wilhelm Boeing, who just turned 13 is about to embark on a journey into more of the unknown since his father's death five years ago the boy has become more and more of a loner his new family sees him as a troublemaker. His mother sees no other option but to send him halfway around the world to a Swiss boarding school near Lake Geneva. Wilhelm was left to cope on his own.
7: I imagine for a young boy from Detroit, going to Switzerland at that time, it was really an undertaking. But apparently, uh, he did quite well. Tens of thousands of people
8: who've experienced that and survived it. I think, in Boeing's case, you have to wonder if it didn't make him a very uh, sort of self-contained uh, and stronger person. That I mean, he was in Switzerland after all, uh, having to to cope with uh, foreign culture and a foreign language, or several foreign languages, being Switzerland.
6: Many years later, the hard years at boarding school are over. And Wilhelm Boeing finally sees the Statue of Liberty appear on the horizon. After all the lonely and authoritarian years in Switzerland, one thing is clear for Wilhelm he's an American. He signs his name as William Boeing. William enrolls at the elite university Yale. But one year before graduation, he drops out and takes a steamship west to Washington State.
9: Yes? Mr. Boeing, your whiskey. Oh, thank you. Stuart, at what time do we arrive in Grays Harbor? Now We arrive tomorrow morning. Is there anything else? No, thank you, that's all. Have a good evening.
6: For Boeing, it's another venture into the unknown. Yet he follows in the footsteps of his father. He wants to go into the timber business.
10: It really was the Wild West, only instead of cowboys and cattle, you had timber and loggers. So there were lots of saloons, hotels, all the kind of places that lumberjacks would want to go to spend their hard earned money. It would have been quite a shock, um, very, very different than what he was used to.
8: In many ways, it must have been very similar to um, Wilhelm Boeing's uh, you know, experiences back. Uh, in Michigan when he first came over as an immigrant. I mean, for a kid who'd been raised in, in luxury, sent to boarding schools, uh, uh, had gone to Yale, there must have been a shock.
6: At about the same time, on the east coast of America, thousands of miles away from William Boeing, and at first unnoticed by the world, a technical quantum leap A revolution that would change the world is taking
0: place. And when we come back, more on the life of William Boeing. This day in history, as always brought to us by Hillsdale College. Boeing died on this day in history in 1956. This is Our American Stories. We're covering the life of William Boeing. We learned that he had dropped out of Yale, that he'd headed west, and that there was this amazing new innovation rocking the world, rocking the technological world. Frankly, just changing, perhaps, how the world would live. Let's pick up the story.
6: Brothers Wilbur and Orville Wright have been studying flying devices for years. On December 17, 1903, the two bicycle mechanics finally succeed in performing the first motorized flight in the history of mankind. This feat would soon change William Boeing's life too. In fact, in the deep woods of Washington, Boeing manages to achieve things that nobody
10: thought him capable of. Within a short period of time, he started the Greenwood Timber Company. So he had his own logging business that he had started. He also started Boeing and McCrimmon, which was a land holding company. So he would purchase land so that he could log it and possibly for the mineral rights. But once he was done logging it, this holding company then sold the land. Um, So he was very successful in the few years that he stayed in the Grays Harbor area. In all of his pictures, he's always well-dressed. Part of that is just the time, but part of it was just who he was. Um, You see photographs of him out in the woods, and yes, he's wearing rough clothes, heavy wool slacks, but they were always nicely made. You can tell when you look at the pictures that it's high-quality material. He just always presented himself as a well-dressed, well-heeled businessman.
6: Boeing is a wealthy bachelor who has achieved great success. And in 1909, at the World's Fair in Seattle, he sees a manned airplane fly for the first time. This sparks a fascination with aircraft. And in 1910, his life takes a new turn when he travels south to the Los Angeles International Air Meet to see the first aviation show in the United States. Since the Wright brothers motorized flight in 1903, the developments in aviation have been immense. Thousands of spectators come to see the flying machines. William Boeing is fascinated and wants to try it himself. He approaches most of the aviators asking for a ride and is turned down by all but one. Here again is William Boeing, Jr.
7: There was a French pilot by the name of Poulin who was going to give him a ride. However, unfortunately, the Wright brothers sued Huland for infringement of patents on the controls. and He was one very mad Frenchman that he, he, he didn't like that.
10: It just didn't work out. Poland ended up leaving the Los Angeles area before Boeing could get a ride in an airplane, but he obviously was very attracted to this.
6: many consider the ride that Poulin failed to give William Boeing to be the greatest missed opportunity of his life. Tell me about your trip to Los Angeles.
9: Oh, it was quite fascinating. I, actually, I attended an aviation event a couple of weeks ago. It was amazing.
6: Fixated by the thought of flying, Boeing returns to Seattle. His conversations keep revolving around aviation. Then, four years after his visit to Los Angeles, Boeing is introduced to U.S. Navy Lieutenant Conrad Westervelt.
9: William Boeing? Conrad Westervelt. Nice, oh, nice to meet you. Nice so to meet you. Heard a lot of good things about you. Oh, all good, I hope. Well, I hope so, too. So. Have <laughs> you uh, been up in a plane before? Well, I uh, studied aerodynamics at MIT, so oh. uh, I kind of designed those things. Really? I'd oh. like to talk to you more about that. You know, uh, aviation is the future. Yes, it is. Yeah.
10: Westervelt was a well educated East Coast young man who was in the US Navy. He comes from a very similar background from Boeing.
6: Boeing finds a friend in Westervelt who sees the airplane as something more than the widely held belief that it was nothing more than an expensive toy. To affirm that the aeroplane is going to revolutionize the future is to be guilty of the wildest exaggeration trumpeted the Scientific American magazine that year. But for Boeing and Westervelt, there's only one topic in life, flying.
10: So you have these two young men, they're single, they're fairly well off, both interested in aviation, both interested in similar things. And so it was, the two of them finally got their airplane ride in Seattle.
6: On the morning of July 4th, 1914, Boeing and Vesterveldt celebrate the 4th of July by purchasing tickets for a ride on a push-prop Curtis Sea plane on Lake Washington. Boeing goes first. Sitting on the lower wing of the plane, Boeing's feet dangle over the front of the wing, while his hands grip the edge of the wing. And there is no seatbelt.
7: He spent uh, the afternoon taking turns with his friend, uh, and they became more and more interested. This is 1914.
10: The short of it is that they looked at it and they said, "We can build a better airplane," and that was the beginning of Pacific Aero Products, that eventually became the Boeing Company.
6: A small shipyard situated on Lake Union in Seattle, an ideal spot for building water planes becomes the nucleus of the Boeing Airplane Company. On June 15th, 1916, William Boeing has his new 26-foot-long seaplane, Bluebill, pushed out onto the lake. His test pilot is unaccountably late. Growing impatient, Boeing climbs into the cockpit, takes the controls, and taxis out into Lake Union. Determined to perform the first flight, as the late pilot rushes up to the hangar, he's just in time to see Boeing turn the plane into the wind, gun the engine, and lift off.
7: Now, Father hadn't had a lot of experience. He'd had a little bit in this Martin seaplane, but that was about all he'd had. You know, it's quite a performance to get in an airplane, brand new, that actually he and Westerfeld had, had constructed and take off.
6: Boeing's maiden flight is a success, flying over 900 feet. The following morning, Boeing and his plane are the talk of the nation. For the last two years since 1914, World War I has been raging in Europe. For the first time in history, aircraft are deployed in battle. Yet America fails to see the importance of aviation in war. Boeing sees an opportunity.
8: Boeing was not only a a believer in aviation, and an enthusiast, but he was also uh, in his way, I mean, he was a patriot and he thought uh, America was asleep at the switch, that the war in Europe was already showing that aviation had a role, and it was a role that was increasing almost week by week as aircraft improved and as their uses were diversified. When the war began in 1914, the American army had 55 aircraft on its rolls, 55. I mean, Belgium had a more thriving military aircraft presence in 1914 than the United States did.
6: Boeing wants to wake the military up, this spectacular event.
8: He flew over the city and dropped fake bombs, uh, cardboard uh, missiles that with the message in them, you know, sort of in a sense saying, wake up, we need to be, uh, our aviation needs to be prepared, you know, we're vulnerable. And the story goes that one of the places he dropped them was at a football game between the University of Washington and uh, the University of California. And I've checked, and and there was a game here in November when this flight took place. So I believe that part of it is, in fact, true also.
0: And the story keeps getting better. How a guy who leaves Yale University ends up in... Well, as far west as you can get in this country, practically. And at the time, there was no Hawaii, so it was as far west as you could get. And goes from the timber industry to the airplane industry. When we come back, more of this great life story, the life of William Boeing, who died on this day in history in 1956. This is Our American Stories, and we're covering the life of William Boeing, who died on this day in history in 1956. As always, our This days in histories are brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you with all of their great online courses at hillsdale.edu. And let's pick up where we left off, again, the story of William Boeing.
6: Today, Boeing's headquarters in Chicago, the workplace of company historian Michael Lombardi, is home of the company's most important document, which is kept in a safe, multiply insured and protected.
11: This is the document that Bill Boeing put together when he decided to start the company. It's a wonderful document when you're you're trying to examine the genius and the vision of Bill Boeing. And keeping in mind at the time, Uh, the airplane in the United States was just a curiosity. Nobody really saw a use for it. But Bill Boeing in these articles of incorporation put down what his business should be. And you see some amazing things such as having airports and the ideas of, uh, which was completely unheard of at the time, of people flying on airplanes and using the airplane for travel. It really shows the genius and the vision that Bill Boeing had.
6: Because of the war in Europe, the Navy is looking to order 50 training planes. Boeing is very keen on getting this contract. All his hopes lie in his new seaplane, the Model C. Boeing calls in his best test pilot for a private meeting.
9: I've got two Model Cs ready to go down to Pensacola, Florida, and I want you to fly them. I'm your man, sir. I can do it. I know you are. But I will tell you, this is um, going to be quite a challenge. I've, I've got a lot of air time in these models. I know what I'm doing. I know you do. That's why you got the job. But this will be completely different than what you've been doing in Seattle. Uh, There's different waves, there's different wind, weather conditions, and you'll be flying against the best in the country. And uh, this is for a government contract. Fifty planes. Fifty planes. If you can earn this contract, then the future of the company is very, very bright. I cannot express to you how important this is. Uh, This is the future of the company, and you're the man to make that change. You up for the challenge? I can do it, yes sir, I'm, I'm, I'm your man. All right. I don't want you to worry about a thing. So, here's to uh, future business, and ultimately future successes. Okay. In
6: 1917, the United States enters into World War I. Pilots and aircraft are now needed on the other side of the Atlantic. At Boeing's aircraft hangar in Seattle, there's an uneasy calm. They're waiting for the outcome of the test flights in front of the Navy Commission in Florida.
9: Gentlemen, I've received news from Pensacola. They say the Model C is excellent and that we have won the commission. We're in business. Now we have to build 50 planes in a short time. I'm counting on each and every one of you. Now let's get to work.
11: Boeing received a contract for 50 of these Navy trainers. So it was our first government contract and the first, uh, the, the first production order that Boeing received. So this really was the, the beginning of the company. The son of a German immigrant is awarded the sought
6: after contract for planes to be used in the war against Germany. Boeing's people work in three shifts around the clock to complete this order. November 1918. World War I is over and America celebrates its victorious soldiers. Like all Americans, William Boeing is relieved that the killings on the battlefields in Europe have stopped. But he's anxious too. Surely there won't be any more defense contracts in times of peace.
8: Boeing suffered at the end of the First World War, as all aircraft manufacturers did. It was, a, it was an industry that, that had really not existed in any significant sense before the war. Suddenly it was called into life by the needs of the war. Boeing immediately had to lay off
6: uh, people. Boeing, who went into the aviation business with so much passion, is suddenly faced with enormous financial difficulties. This was in part because a surplus of cheap used military aircraft flooded the market, and many aircraft manufacturers, including Boeing, were unable to sell new aircraft.
9: What can I do for you, sir?
3: Well, sir, I've been working for you going on a year now, and yesterday I lost my job. I've got a wife and two little girls, and I don't know what I'll do without
9: work. Well, the company's hit rock bottom. I mean, the government doesn't want our planes anymore. I mean, what do you want me to do? I pay your salaries and bills with my private fortune. If I didn't do that, we'd be out of business a long time ago. Yes, sir. Thank you anyway. No, wait. In which department do you work?
3: Carpentry, sir. All
9: right, I'll talk to your foreman.
3: Thank you. Thank you, sir.
11: Knowing that the business would continue sometime in the future, he wanted to hold on to his people. And the thing to to remember at this time, these were very skilled craftsmen, woodworkers, seamstresses, and the engineers that he brought in. These people were hard to find, and it would be very difficult to find them again. Boeing had
8: two choices. They could collapse. And simply, he could say, well, it was fun, and now I'm going to do something else. Or he could keep it going with money out of his own pocket.
6: Boeing puts $390,000 of his private money into his ailing company. In order to survive and keep from closing, Boeing is forced to diversify and start selling, among other things, furniture, countertops, phonograph cases, and flat-bottomed boats called sea sleds. The sea sled can hit a speed of over 40 knots because they're equipped with, you guessed it, airplane engines. These boats speed across the Seattle waters with deafening
8: noise. They built, you know, like a dozen of them, and they sold three until Prohibition came in. And suddenly, whether this is in fact why or not, we don't know, but suddenly they all sold, and they sold for cash. Almost overnight, the rest of the sea sleds disappeared. So the inference has always been that somebody saw their value as uh, bootlegging vessels to run up Puget Sound into Canada, where prohibition was not in effect. So Boeing contributed to the uh, bootlegging careers of many people in the area, but they they were fine vessels. Boeing keeps his company from
6: going under by accepting even the tiniest of contracts in hopes of better times for his aviation business.
7: One worker that came up to him and wanted to know if they are going to make it or not. And I think Father said, we get by this summer, we'll never look back. You know, they got by this summer and never
0: have to look back. This is Our American Stories, and it doesn't get much better than this, folks. And you see over and over again in our stories about business history that it's not a smooth ride no pun intended to get where you need to go in these businesses and when we come back the final chapter of William Boeing's life here on Our American Stories he died on this day in history in 1956 and as always our this days in history are brought to us by Hillsdale College a great place to learn all of the fine things in life from art To business, to the Constitution, and of course, sports. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu for all of their great online courses. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we're back in the final installment of the life of William Boeing, who died on this day in history in 1956. Let's return to the story.
9: Uh, good morning, Eddie. We're Mr. Boeing. Everything ready? Model C is ready to take off, refilled, and checked. Where do we fly to? we we'll fly to Vancouver. <laughs> Where? <laughs> Seriously. What do we do there? Pick up mail. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of storms in that area, and this time of year, the weather's not going to be that cooperative. Fly right up here, right straight up the coast. And be in Vancouver before you know it. Yes, sir.
11: Let's do it. In
6: 1919, Boeing has a new idea planes could speed up the postal service and make it more efficient. He plans a direct flight across the Canadian border to Vancouver. When he returns to Seattle, this is a moment of triumph for William Boeing. In 1927,
11: chances for a lucrative business opportunity arise for Boeing. One of the major leaps in the business for Bill Boeing really put him on the national stage. Was the idea that they would try to win one of the uh, mail contracts, airmail contracts, that the United States Post Office had put out for bid? Boeing's men
6: get started. They want to create the greatest airmail plane ever built.
11: The Model 40, as they called it, became the envy of its competitors. The airplane did beat the competition, and it was critical to the success of, of Mr. Boeing winning this contract. Uh, the, actually the biggest contract which was flying mail from San Francisco to Chicago.
6: Boeing's move displayed incredible foresight. He won the bid for the contract by deciding to use an air-cooled engine rather than a traditional water-cooled engine in his Model 40 mailplanes. The Model 40, in addition to carrying mail, also had an enclosed cabin that could carry two passengers. So for this venture, William founded a new business, an airline company called Boeing Air Transport, later to be called United Airlines. In the first year of operation, it delivered an estimated 1,300 tons of mail and carried 6,000 passengers. This was a moment of triumph and revolution.
7: It was a new concept of aviation, of, of blending passengers and airmail and everything together. This was the first time in this country that passengers, freight, and mail were carried on a route. This route was 2,000 miles long from San Francisco to Chicago.
11: The Boeing Airplane Company had some success building military planes, but nothing on the commercial side. And this airplane really established the Boeing Company as a commercial airplane company as well.
6: Boeing started to show a profit from his airmail
7: endeavor. The rule was that the mail came first. And so if they had more mail, passengers got bumped. But carrying those passengers actually is what made it profitable even the first year. And that is very unusual when you start something as new as this to have it successful the first year.
6: As his company begins experiencing new success, so does William personally, as he meets and marries Bertha Paschel. From now on, she hardly ever leaves his side. Boeing gives the love of his life a gift, the taconite, a yacht named after the iron ore his father once found that had brought great wealth to the family. But turbulence hits Boeing's flight of success with the Wall Street crash of 1929. It will become the most devastating stock market crash in the history of the United States. The mood swings against Boeing and the thriving airmail companies.
11: When the Depression happened, and then actually in the, some of the darkest days of the Depression, The aviation industry was doing quite well, despite the depression. So this of course caught the attention of politicians in Washington.
6: Politicians look for a scapegoat. In February 1934, William Boeing is summoned to a government antitrust investigating committee.
4: Mr. Boeing, Mr. Boeing, is it true that in 1916 you founded the
9: Boeing Airplane Company in Seattle, Washington? Yes sir, that is correct.
4: And 1927.
6: Boeing is accused of creating a monopoly and getting his government contracts only through secret agreements. Monopoly
8: for your the government
6: cancels all contracts. In the future they want to nationalize all the routes. Boeing desperately tries to refute these charges.
9: Sir I did not create a monopoly nor did I cheat anyone. I simply had the foresight to bid low take a loss the first couple of years, with a long view in mind. The only thing I am guilty of is running a successful company. That's all. It was very unfair hearings. Uh, They weren't
7: interested in the facts. They're more interested in the conclusion that they've arrived at before the meeting started. And so this basically was more a political vendetta.
6: Boeing, Boeing, a man of the deepest integrity is so hurt by the accusations that he regrets ever getting into aviation.
11: All the charges were dropped but the whole idea of of being treated this way that uh, remembering that Bill Boeing was uh, the epitome of a gentleman that his word was was everything he was honest a man of integrity open and fair business these are things that he believed in and to have that questioned was an affront to him it it, uh, affected him deeply and he sold his interest and moved on to private life
6: william boeing who founded the boeing airplane company 18 years prior to the investigation and then turned it into a booming business resigns as chairman and sells his stock He spends most of his time with his wife on their yacht, the Taconite. He serves as an advisor to the Boeing Airplane Company during World War II and is on hand again in 1954 for the rollout of the Boeing 707. Boeing Airplane Company's first jet and their first commercially successful jet airliner. Then on September 1956, Just two days before William Boeing's 75th birthday, time stands still on board the Taconite. Here's the current owner of the Taconite, Gordon Levitt. I'm reviewing here the pilot house log
11: of the yacht and uh, I'm looking at uh, September the 28th, 1956 with sincere regret. I record the death of the owner, Mr. William E. Boeing, at 1308, from acute thrombosis. Signed, Perth McIntyre, Master. No
6: formal funeral was held, and his family scattered his ashes into the sea off the coast of British Columbia, where he spent much of his time sailing. On December 15th, 1966, William Boeing was inducted into the Aviation Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio for outstanding contributions to aviation by his successful organization of a network of airline routes and the production of vitally important military and commercial aircraft. William E. Boeing established a company that remains iconic in American industry. Today the Boeing Company is the world's largest aerospace company and leading manufacturer of commercial jetliners and defense, space and security systems. Boeing products include military aircraft, satellites, weapons, electronic and defense systems, launch systems and advanced information and communication systems. With 96 billion dollars in sales, Boeing has customers in more than 150 countries and operations in 49 states that employ over 156,000 Americans. Despite his company's stature, Boeing carefully managed his public persona and did not reveal many details about his life. The life of the company Boeing founded, however, provides some insight into the man. At its root, it was a simple passion for flight that pushed him to innovate. Boeing did not necessarily have a grander vision of the future of powered flight than did his contemporaries. What he did have was the ability to recognize opportunities when they presented themselves and the skill to leverage his considerable personal resources in pursuit of those opportunities. Boeing also knew how to choose people who shared his goals and who could best complement his own talents. These characteristics coupled with a strong commitment to excellent engineering and design laid the foundation for a company that perhaps more than any other became a lasting symbol of the strength of American manufacturing in the 20th and now 21st century.
0: And what a story. Great work on that as always, Greg. Just terrific. And by the way, the federal government hauling great men before Congress to find scapegoats boy, that story doesn't happen anymore, does it? This is Lee Habib, The Life of William Boeing. And again, this is Our American Stories. For all of our This Days in History, go to our website, ouramericannetwork.org. Go to our tab, Topics, and there are about 150 This Days in History there for your listening pleasure.